morning again. We are so glad you're with us. We're actually so glad that you're letting us join you right where you're at in your homes, and it's just such a joy to be here. And, and, and if you're the f- logging on for the first time to be with us, just a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope this morning is just going to be really encouraging for you. Um, when I was a kid, um, I assumed when I watched TV shows, now this was back in the olden days, uh, I, I, I assumed before Netflix and streaming, uh, I assumed that TV shows stopped for me. Like when, when I'm watching it like on broadcast, cast television. I assumed when I turned the TV off, like it would just stop where it was and I would go away, come back, and, and then the, the show I was watching, the cartoon, whatever it was, would come back on. Well, I, I, I remember, like it was yesterday, a day when I was watching Scooby-Doo. And uh, I, I had to go do something. I don't remember what it was. My mom called me away and I, I, I turned the TV off thinking it'll, it'll, it'll stop and wait for me. I went away, did that, what I had to do, came back, turned the TV back on, and like another show was on. And uh, I was like, what in the world went wrong? There's this glitch in the system. It's supposed to stop for me. And uh, finding out that shows didn't like stop for me like they do now, I kind of like to think that maybe my mind invented streaming. Uh, <clears throat> but at that point, it was in existence. And to find out that shows didn't stop for me, my, my world changed. It was kind of like, man, who's been lying to me all this time that the world doesn't revolve around me? I had to stop and reassess my view of reality because this glitch in the system made me stop and say, wait a second, hold on, what are things really like? And the series we're starting today called Pause uh, is all about pushing pause on what we've been taught and what we've always thought. These assumptions uh, that, that we live with, that we either picked up from our family, our culture, education, even church. Our goal is to push pause and say, wait a second, that's what we think That's what we tend to think. That's our assumption. But what does the Bible actually say? We want to stop and challenge us all to think biblically about life, not just culturally about life as we've picked it up. And also through this series, we'd like for you to kind of have some choice in what we talk about. Um, We'd love for you to respond with some topics and beliefs you're thinking about or even questioning right now. We'd like to preach a sermon or two on those topics that you send in. And, uh, and that you're thinking about. And also, any questions that come up along the way. As I preach today or in the, the weeks that follow, any questions you have that come up. We've already gotten a couple from last service. It's awesome. Uh, we're so grateful for you guys doing that. We'd love for you guys just to inundate us with questions for a question and answer session we're going to do at the very end of this series that you might have. So send those in. How you're going to do that is look for a poll on Instagram today. There's going to be a little poll you can fill in on Instagram. Uh, also, comment in today's Facebook post. Just comment your questions or your topics that you'd have. And if you prefer not to comment publicly on Facebook, or you're like totally not on social media like I I am, I'm kind of living in the dark ages with you there, Uh, there's a a page on our website that you can go to, and the hosts of our live stream chat will post that, a link to that, and that link will also be on this Friday's newsletter for you to do that through the website. Well, today's topic, to pause and figure out what we believe biblically, is is about suffering. This is a very large topic, and I'm going to tell you right off the bat that the deeper I've delved into this topic, um, the less qualified I feel to be the one talking to you about it. It's not that I haven't suffered, it's just that the topic is so large and so intricate that I feel very undereducated, underexperienced, and underqualified to speak with any kind of authority at all. So it's not going to be me speaking with authority today. I hope to bring God's word into play and have it speak with authority today. And today what we're going to address is not the whole topic by any means. We could spend years talking about this topic and still only uh, just kind of scratch the surface. Today is like the tip of the tip of the iceberg just to get us maybe thinking in the right direction about how God thinks about suffering. And so... Uh, we're gonna, all that being said, we're going to jump into God's word. 
In the book of Job, I'd encourage you to turn there, chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 13. Uh, the book of Job is, is especially uh, helpful, um, God's, part of God's word to us about suffering. Um, in all of history, Job might be the most uh, famous sufferer because the whole book about him is about his suffering. You see, he was an upright man. He honored God in all he did. And Satan, uh, Satan though, came along and accused him of using God of only being faithful to manipulate God into blessing him. Satan was cynical about Job and said, there's no way he could be doing this just because he loves you, that he's honoring you just because he loves you. Look at all the blessings you've given him. He has everything he wants. And so God actually allows Satan to test Job's motives. And we start reading the story at uh, Job 1.13. Read with me. Now, there was a day when his, Job's, sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I'm, I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And all alone, I alone have escaped to tell you. And when he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he, it just keeps going, while While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you he lost everything. Job lost everything and everyone he loved, it seems, except for his wife. But this wasn't enough for Satan. He goes on cynically to insist that Job still has his health. And this would be the last straw in Job loving God. If, if he didn't have his help, health, Job would give up on God. And we read in Job 2, 7 through 8. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This is a story of total suffering. There was not a square inch of Job's life that went untouched by suffering. And because so many people in the world have had this kind of suffering, just deep, lifelong, anguished suffering that affects every part of your life, our world has offered up several different approaches to making sense of the pain. Here are the typical ways we grow up learning to respond to suffering. This is kind of what our cultures, or depending on where you came from, what part of the world you came from, where you grew up, maybe in the United States, another country, your family, what religion you're a part of. These are some of the answers that have been uh, offered to us to to make sense of the pain. Um, Culturally, the first one we might call the stoic approach. And kind of the, the, the banner of this one is be strong, don't cry. Be strong. And that, that the idea is that suffering, if endured with, without showing weakness, is an opportunity for you to gain honor for yourself, for you to honor yourself and your family. This, we find this approach in many cultures where honor is of the highest value. And so in this view, if you face pain unflinchingly with resolve and no one sees you sweat or cry, you've purchased honor for yourself and you can be proud of it. And, and this certainly is present in America, but this is not the most prevalent 
Another that we see in, in the world's answers for how to deal with suffering is the transcendent approach. The idea here is that suffering is just an illusion. Suffering is all in your mind. It's created by the loss of things you're attached to. And so detach from everything, and you will see suffering for the illusion that it is. It's just, it's not real. It's all in your head. This approach is highly regarded in cultures where Buddhism holds sway. I don't mean to say that what I just said is the entirety of what Buddhists believe, but there's some kind of, that's kind of some core belief there is detachment to end suffering. And in this view, suffering is a sign that you aren't enlightened, and it's a signal to let go of attachment to point the way to harmony. Again, this is present in America, but it's not most prevalent. The karmic approach, this is another one. And the idea of this, a catchphrase of this would be, what goes around comes around. You've heard that. If you're suffering, though, in this idea, this approach, the karmic approach, if you're suffering, it's because the universe is getting even with you for some wrong or imbalance you've caused, either in this life or in the previous one. So you have to grit through it because you're paying a debt you owe to the universe. So suck it up. Walk through it. You deserve this. Now, if you've grown up in a... That that one's probably not as prevalent in America where we live um, uh, as as the next two that we're going to hit. These probably hit a little bit closer to home. The next approach, especially if you grew up in a religious family or culture, is, is the moralistic approach. And the banner of that is you're being punished by God. If you're suffering, it's probably because you're being punished by God. It's because you've displeased God and pain is either punishment or the way that you earn virtue and pay back your offense to God. Some of you are saying, yeah, I remember being told that growing up. There's certain things I must do, hoops I have to jump through to get back in God's good graces. And so sin is seen as creating a debt that only can be paid back by your suffering. By suffering, you're, you're both paying the debt and showing God you've learned a lesson and you're becoming better. I'll never forget the story that a woman um, told that I heard that she, she had had a, uh, a miscarriage, was in deep pain about it, came to church the next week, and someone at the church came up to her and said, I'm so sorry you went through that, but I'm going to pray that God would reveal to you the sin that you committed uh, and so why this happened. That was said in church. Because this person had bought into this approach. And and, and in this approach, suffering can be seen as a consequence to obeying God even. Uh, That the world around us is so broken that when we obey God, we're going to suffer because the rest of the world is is not doing the right thing. So suffering can be worn as a badge of virtue. I'm doing it right, everyone else is doing it wrong, so I wear this as a badge of virtue. But I think the next approach, now that approach, probably many of us have some parts of that in our thinking about suffering. But this next approach, I think, hits the closest to home for most Americans, at least. And it's this, modern secular, secularism, or you could even call it modern atheistic secularism. And this affects both atheists and non-atheists, those who believe in a God. Um, and the idea of this is that suffering is just random and meaningless. That there is no God, and he, we live in a cold, harsh, chaotic universe. Your suffering is a roll of the dice. It's a meaningless accident. And therefore, it has no meaning or purpose. And in this view, there's just a really high degree of effort to control your circumstances. We set up shields and, and, and redundancies and insurances all around us so that if something bad happens we can get back to normalcy immediately because remember, there's no 
meaning in suffering. You just get through it as quickly and painlessly as possible. And this is a view that is predominant in our culture. Atheists and religious people alike, even if you believe in a God, you've probably practically bought into this in some way. And because of this view, our culture is the first in history. People who are way smarter than me have have studied this and have said that we are the first in history that does not have a built-in belief that pain has a purpose. Every other culture, every other uh, uh, generation of our history there has been a built-in purpose for pain. Wrong or right, how it's been explained, there was a purpose in pain and suffering. This is the first time in human history, mind you, that a culture does not have a built-in belief about the, the value and meaning of pain and suffering. And so the answer for us, for most of us, has become, to pain, has become, don't look for meaning in it. Avoid it, and if you can't avoid it, numb it and get through it as quickly as possible so that the interruption in your life can be as brief as it can be. But let's take a look at God's truth of suffering through Job's response. You see, after Job had lost not only all he owned but found out that all of his children were dead, he said this in one twenty. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then look at his response when the final straw of his health was attacked. Chapter two, verse nine. Then his wife, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Job, you still believe in God? And if you do, you still believe he's good? And you're still gonna honor him? Curse God and die. That was his wife's advice. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That word for evil is ra. It means bad. Shall we receive good from God and not bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I want to walk through quickly some things that I noticed about Job's response to suffering in these things we just read and also in the rest of the book of Job. First thing, Job grieved. He didn't maintain his composure. He tore his robes sat in ashes and wailed before God. He cried and he questioned. Another thing I noticed, he didn't run to techniques to fix or divorce himself from the pain. His pain was real and he had to live through it. He didn't have just a trick of the mind to to convince himself he wasn't actually suffering. He sat in it. Another thing, he didn't try to answer the question why. Now, he did ask why. The, almost the whole book of Job is, God, is Job saying, why is this happening to me? And his friends trying to explain to him why, wrongly. He asked the question why, but he didn't try to answer the question why with what goes around comes around. He knew that he hadn't done anything to deserve this. He knew that there must be a, a place in reality where he could be in the right and suffering could still happen. He didn't, 
he questions God and he complained about the injustice of his suffering, but nowhere in his response to God does he bargain with God and promise good deeds in return for belief. Like, God, I'll do these good things and and you, you ease up the suffering. This is not a transaction to Job. It's a relationship. And he doesn't believe that by doing good things now, God's going to reward him with easing the suffering. Another thing, he embraced the purpose of his suffering without knowing why he was suffering. Never in the entire book of Job does God ever actually answer Job's question of why he's suffering. We get a peek into why Job, his whole life, never knew. Never knew. He embraced the purpose of his suffering without knowing he was suffering. And Job's final response to God is that God is in the right. You can look it up, Job 42, 1 through 6. His final response to God is that God is in the right. And Job himself must shape himself to God around God, not the other way around. Man made in God's image, not God made in man's image. I have to mold my life around the reality of God. Job accepted that his suffering must transform him, shape him, no matter how painful it was. And this is so important. In spite of the injustice of his suffering, Job embraces a God he can't control. He embraces a God that he cannot control. He continues to love and be faithful to a God who does what he will. Lovingly, yes, but always answering the questions of why, no. And so with Job, who struggled and questioned and suffered deeply. Let's regain a view of suffering through God's eyes. Let's pursue a biblical theology of suffering. The first thing I want to say to you from what I see in God's word and through the book of Job is this, that suffering is overwhelming. Suffering is overwhelming. It is traumatic, and so we grieve toward God. Unlike the Stoic honor cultures of the past, through scripture we see the invitation to express suffering with cries and questions. Just read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of psalm writers saying, God, why? This is so painful. I don't think I can handle this. It feels like you've turned against me. It feels like you've left me. Be honest to God. There's no honesty. There's no goodness, rather, In being dishonest to God, cry out, wail in front of him, ask him why, tell him you're hurt. If you're angry, tell him you're angry. We're meant to grieve towards God. Honor and strength are not found in suppressing grief, but in directing your grief toward a father who is listening and who grieves with you. You don't believe that your God grieves with you? Read Isaiah 53, especially verse 3. He does. And have you ever thought about this, that grieving is actually agreeing with God? That this isn't the way things should be. This is not the way God created this world. And if I'm suffering, it's, it's, it's a result of things not being as they should. And so when you grieve, you agree with God that this is not how it ought to be. That his good world has been disfigured from its original design. And that suffering this, that it produces is truly grievous to his heart. When you grieve, you align your heart with God when he looks at the world and sees the suffering. The number two thing I want to tell you is this. Suffering is real. Don't neglect it. Unlike self-transcendent traditions, suffering is not an illusion. It is real and it is very serious in you and in the others around you. 
It should never be brushed aside in an attempt to substitute it with unattached tranquility. It is real and it requires patient, gracious endurance, not attachment. Endurance, not attachment. You see, Jesus himself suffered and grieved. Again, read Isaiah 53. It says that Jesus went to the cross to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Jesus wasn't bearing an illusion. He was bearing a real thing, real grief, real suffering, your grief, your suffering. There is no philosophy that you can embrace or technique you can master to insulate yourself from suffering. Many have tried. It doesn't work. Jesus' followers don't run to technique, though some techniques can help you manage pain and and by all means do them as long as they're healthy, biblical, good for you, good for those around you. But we don't run first to technique. We run to relationship. That is the key to deeper attachment of the right things, namely God himself. Three, suffering is often unjust. Don't play the blame game. You will not heal if you spend your whole time wondering who's at fault. You see, unlike karma religions, the Bible teaches that suffering is so often completely undeserved by the sufferer. So often, it's caused by the sin of others. And, and, and if we have a belief that, like the karma religions, that if I'm going through suffering, I did something wrong, it's destructive to our souls. If, if that's the only answer we can come up with, that it must be me, I must have deserved this. How many people have gone through horrific things they did not deserve, and if they believed this, how destructive to their soul, to their relationship with God. So it's dangerous to, to link specific sin to specific suffering. Now certainly, we should be able to see and admit the choices we make have consequences that we face, right? Like if you woke up with a hangover this morning, likely you don't feel right being like, why God, why am I suffering right now? Because like, just think back a few hours, right? Just think back a few hours and you know why you're suffering right now. But that being said, it is presumptive to assume that you can explain another person's suffering. This is where it gets difficult. Explain another person's suffering, and oftentimes your own, by linking it to something they've done. Look at Job, the whole book of Job. His friends were hell-bent on helping him to discover what sin he had done to make God angry. That's most of the book of Job. Them saying, you must have sinned because God would not let a, a righteous person suffer. And Job saying, I know I'm a righteous man. I didn't do anything wrong. And them trying to blame him for what he was going through. But in the end, God rebukes those friends for being so foolish as to think that they could speak for him on this matter. As if they could look at the universe and have all knowledge to be able to say, Job, I know why you're going through what you're going through. He says to them, who is this that darkens my counsel? His friends trying to answer the question of why we're darkening God's counsel. Bringing in confusion into the mix. Ours is not to connect people's suffering with specific sins. Ours is to connect their hearts to the healer who can make their suffering meaningful, transform them, and ultimately one day remove it all. Because believe me, if you believe God's word, one day all suffering, your suffering, the suffering of the entire world, will be gone. Fourth thing I want to tell you, suffering doesn't please God, Jesus does. Suffering in itself doesn't please God, 
Jesus does. So hope in Jesus. Unlike moralistic religions that believe that the good people will suffer to earn virtue and acceptance by paying for their wrongdoing, Christianity does not believe that in itself suffering brings people closer to God. Rather, suffering is dominated by the idea of grace. We as recipients of forgiveness do not in pride wear our suffering as a badge of virtue. But rather, it is this grace, forgiveness, and acceptance that makes suffering bearable and turns suffering into a builder of our character. The fifth thing that I want to tell you, and if you, if you forget everything else today, maybe remember this. Well, there's a couple things I want you to remember, but do remember this. Suffering is meaningful. Don't waste your pain. Unlike modern secularism, suffering isn't a random, meaningless coincidence in a godless universe. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, said this, there is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. The removal of God and the removal of God and the removal of the idea that suffering has a purpose has destroyed our ability to function in suffering. Our culture has fed us the belief that suffering is pointless pain that's meant to be gotten through numbly and as quickly as possible. And so when we experience the pain of suffering without the purpose of suffering, we have no will to endure it. If you're experiencing pain, deep pain, or even shallow pain, and you have no thought in your heart that there is a meaning to this, there is a transformational purpose for this, you can't endure it. And so we just despair instead. Dr. Paul Brand, he was this pioneering orthopedic surgeon in the treatment of leprosy patients. And he spent the first part of his medical career in India and the last part of his career in the United States. And he wrote this. In the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. Why? The short answer was that other cultures have provided its members with various answers to the question, what is the purpose of human life? And what's the purpose of suffering? Friends, don't waste your pain. It is not God's original design. It is not good, and it will not be forever, though. But in a broken world, suffering is not only inevitable, it is necessary. So don't waste your pain. Pain is always the first step towards healing. In our physical bodies, pain and discomfort is usually that very first indicator that something has gone wrong, right? You feel something. It's off. It doesn't feel right. It hurts. And so it sends us to the doctor, Our suffering in life is oftentimes a severe mercy. The pain is there and it hurts so badly, but it alerts us to something being wrong so we can run to the the doctor, the physician that can fix us. So don't come out of the other end of this, this pain tunnel, this suffering tunnel, with nothing to show for it. What a waste. God intends, he doesn't want you to suffer. That's not how he made this world 
to be, but the way it is, we will suffer and sometimes must suffer. If you have to walk through this, don't come out of it empty-handed. Look at it as a rare gem that God has allowed you to walk through to make you more like Jesus, or it can make you more like the other. Don't waste it. Don't merely numb it and rush through the tunnel so that you're not the same person at at the exit as you were at the entrance. Now, by all means, if you're in physical pain or other kinds of pains, and there are things that the Lord has provided to be able to cope with it and lessen the pain, by all means, follow him into those things. I'm not saying pursue suffering and suffer as, as hard as you can and, 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 and try to bring pain into your life. That is not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying if you must suffer, don't waste it. Because if the source of my joy is things... Suffering will drive me away from the source of my joy. Right? Why? Because the very essence of suffering is loss. So if my joy is things that aren't God, when I suffer, it will drive me away from those things that bring me joy. But if the source of my joy is God himself, then suffering will drive me even deeper into the source of my joy. God himself. When I experience loss and pain because I lose people and things or health, Things other than God, I only have God to cling to. And so if he is the source of my joy, having to cling to him more means having more joy. Some have noticed that I haven't yet answered the question of why is there suffering? And it seems like a simple question to ask, but some of the simple questions to ask have the most complex answers And this is one of those cases where a simple question actually demands one of the most complex answers imaginable that, by the way, I'm not claiming to have. But I will say this. Big picture, if we ask the question, why is there suffering? I believe in the pages of Scripture, this is my personal view, um, that God made the world to work one way and gave us real authority over it. And we used our authority to rebel against him And so we've turned the world upside down. It is not working as he designed it, and he has not retracted his authority. He gave it as a gift for us to have over the world, and he has not taken it back. And so the world we live in is broken and produces suffering after suffering after suffering. It's called sin. But why are you suffering right now? If you're asking that question, why am I suffering right now? That's the big picture. Okay, yeah, sin caused all this. I get it. But why am I specifically suffering right now? What's the specific answer to that? You see, if I were to try to answer that question, I believe I would be darkening God's counsel just like Job's friends did. Some questions must be left unanswered because the full answer is bigger than the cup we have to catch it in. Imagine those big water towers that store like thousands and thousands of gallons of of, of water and imagine one of those being poured out and you're standing under it with a Dixie cup trying to catch it. You can only catch a a, a minuscule part of, of what was in that tank. And I believe this question about suffering happens to be one of those things that when we ask the question of why, God says, I could answer you, but it would be like dumping out a tank of water and you only have a Dixie cup. Your mind, your heart can't receive the full answer because you don't have the capacity to. You can be the smartest person on the planet, and your mind and, and your heart are not big enough to hold the answer. So I think that's where we have to let God be God. 
And I'm not trying to punt on that answer. I'm not trying to, to take an easy way out. I genuinely believe that that's the answer, that we cannot contain the answer to this question. And if we try to minimize the answer of why down to a, a, an amount that we could understand it, it no longer is the answer. It's truth reduced down to something that becomes not truth anymore. So I can't tell you why you're suffering right now, but I can help you eliminate some reasons that we so quickly run to. First of all, you're not suffering because God doesn't love you. This is another thing. If you leave with anything this morning, know this. You are not suffering because God doesn't love you. I cannot, in all honesty, read the narrative of Scripture. If we're going to look to the Bible and see what the Bible says about suffering, and that's what we're doing, I cannot come away from that story with a sense that God does not radically love you. A God who suffers with his creation, who subjects himself to suffering, one who would send himself to suffer in their place like Jesus did. This is not the picture of a cruel God who doesn't love. This is quite the opposite. This is a God who would do the extent of all he can do and suffer all he could suffer for the sake of you. So I don't know why you're suffering, but it can't be that God doesn't love you because that doesn't line up with the story I read in Scripture. Another thing I want you to know, you're not suffering because God has abandoned you. Your pain, especially if it is long-term, will tempt you to say, if God loves me and is still with me, how could he watch me endure such pain for so long? Have any of you ever asked that? If, if God loves me and he sees me and he's with me, how could he watch me suffer for as long and as deeply as I have? Oh, that's a huge question. I can't answer that question. And I don't know how to answer that question without darkening God's counsel like Job's friends did, but I can say this. A God who would become a human like you, come to earth and walk this earth like you and suffer the cross on your behalf. A God who, when you rebel against him time after time after time, and he does not lose patience with you, but picks you back up and dusts you off and says, let's keep going. A God like that, who's that forgiving, gracious, a merciful father, is not the kind that runs out on his kids. He does not abandon abandonment is just not in any way consistent with the character we read from him in the Bible. So as much as your pain may scream to you that God doesn't love you or that he's left you alone, it simply cannot be true. I don't know what the answer is, but it can't be those two. It cannot be those two answers. Never, ever forget that many years later after Job, Satan afflicted another innocent sufferer. But this time, the sufferer was completely innocent. This sufferer was in so much agony that while he was nailed to a cross, he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And a God who would endure such pain himself surely loves you and surely is with you. You may not know God. You may have never surrendered to Jesus and, and, and started a personal relationship with God. You may have grown up religious. You may have grown up non-religious. Any background, and you're maybe here for the first time or the second or third time 
just checking out what, is, what are the answers to life right now. And if that's you and you've never had a relationship with God, I can tell you that God is inviting you into one today. He loves you so much that Jesus would die on the cross to pay for the sins that, and the pain and the suffering you've caused. Take it into himself. Be punished on your behalf so that you could have eternal life. He took the blame. And if you want to know him and surrender to him today, don't delay. In a moment here, I'm gonna pray. And if you, in the genuineness of your heart, say these things to God and surrender your life to God, as we do this, you are part of this family of all the people in the world who love and, and believe in Jesus. So church all around the city and the county right now and wherever you are, you may be in a different state, you may be in the Bay Area, you may be somewhere across the globe, wherever you are, join with me right now in prayer. And those of you who want to give your life to Jesus this morning, pray this after me. God, I know you love me. And I know that I have sinned and I have rebelled from you. And I know because of what the Bible says that you have done everything in your power to save me. You sent Jesus to die on a cross and to raise from the dead so that my sins could be paid for and so that I could live forever. I trust that there's nothing I can do to earn that salvation. I trust that it's only what Jesus has done for me that can pay for me to be adopted into the family of God. God, I receive what Jesus has done for me and I thank you for saving me and making me part of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer from the genuineness of your heart, God sees you, he hears you, and he has made you his child, and he loves you, and he always will, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. And we love you. If you did do that, we would invite you to... Uh, text CP Prayer to 555-888 and just let us know that you gave your life to Christ today. A couple book recommendations um, that I'd like to give you if you want to research further, if you have any time on your hands uh, this week, uh, to look further in this, this area of suffering. The first one is by uh, Timothy Keller, one of my favorite authors. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. The other one is called Just Suffering, and it's by a man named Paul David Tripp. Great books, really good godly perspective, um, I'd encourage you highly to go get those and read those this week if you want to research this more. Um, they've been very helpful to me. And we'll put those links to those up on our, our socials. We love you. We're so glad you were with us this morning. Before you go, I'd ask you to stick around. I'm going to throw it back up to Chris, and he's got some more information to send us out with. We love you. Have a great week.